Attention. One day, the world-honored one ascended the platform and took his seat. Manjushri struck the sounding post and said, When you realize the Dharma King's Dharma, the Dharma King's Dharma is just as is. At that, the world-honored one descended from the platform. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Koan series. In the Koan series, we will read and discuss famous koans used by real Buddhist monks from such sources as the Blue Cliff Record, the Gateless Gate, the Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, and many others. As you will remember, over-intellectualizing koans is completely anathema to how koans are used and ought to be used in real Buddhist practice, so keep that disclaimer in mind. However, I'm here to give some extra context and meaning to some of these koans so that you might see them in a new light and gain some new or deeper meaning from them than you did before. I hope you enjoy. Today's koan is known in English as The World Honored One Ascends the Platform, and it comes to us from the Jerry Shishin Wick translation of the Book of Equanimity, which is known as the Tsongrong Lu in Chinese, or the Shoyoroku in Japanese. This is our first time reading from this compilation, so I will briefly introduce it. The Book of Equanimity, also called the Book of Serenity or the Book of Composure, was compiled by Wang Song Xingxu, who lived from 1166 to 1246 in China, and this compilation was first published in 1224. The book comprises a collection of 100 koans written by the Chan Buddhist master Hongzhi Zhengjue, who lived from 1091 to 1157. It comes to us together with commentaries by Wang Song himself. Wontong's compilation is the only surviving source for Hongzhi's koans. This text is one of the premier collections of Chan or Zen dialogues and is studied by students of Chan to this day. The koan we are reading today from this collection is the very first case, case number one. This collection, much like many other collections, also comes with a preface to the case itself, which ought to be read with the koan. This preface is kind of like a hype up for the koan to come, or it will signal to the reader how the koan ought to be treated, or it will provide some narrative context for what happens in the koan. Subsequently, it also contains an appreciatory verse, which further hypes up the meaning of the koan and provides a little bit of commentary on it as well. Thus, the whole thing reads, Close the gate and snooze. That's how to treat a superior person. Reflection, abbreviation, and elaboration are used for middling and inferior ones. How can you stand for someone to ascend the high seat and scowl? If anyone here doesn't agree, step forward. I have no doubts about him. Attention. One day the world-honored one ascended the platform and took his seat. Manjushri struck the sounding post and said, When you realize the Dharma King's Dharma, the Dharma King's Dharma is just as is. At that, the world-honored one descended the platform. Do you see the true manner of the primal stage? Mother Nature goes on weaving warp and woof. The woven old brocade contains the images of spring. Nothing can be done about Manjushri's outflowing. As you can see, this is an episode which is meant to impress upon the reader the gravitas of the Buddha and his teaching. It is so powerful that the Buddha need not say anything when he ascends the platform to teach, and you still have an impression of the importance, the weight, and the depth of his teaching and his personhood. As such, it may seem like the implication or the message of this koan is that the immenseness and the eminence of the Buddha and his teaching ought to be self-evident. That is why he didn't say anything. However, as we will discuss, it is quite a bit more complicated than that. 
If the Buddha's teaching was truly self-evident to all of us, we would not need to practice, study, learn, and work for it. So, if it is not self-evident, then what is it? That's the question we will be discussing today. As always, I've selected three concepts that I think would be helpful in interpreting this koan. These are not the only three concepts at work in this koan, and it's even debatable to say that there are any of these at work at all. But these are the loudest alarm bells that ring in my head whenever I read this case. We will be discussing suchness, or thusness as it is sometimes called, and its relationship to self-evidence. This is what popped into my mind when Manjushri said, when you realize that Dharma King's Dharma, the Dharma King's Dharma is just as is. We will also be discussing the issue of the primal stage, as it is called in the appreciatory verse. This term will be discussed as ultimate reality. What is ultimate reality in Zen Buddhism? Finally, we will once again be discussing language in the context of the koan. What role does language play in getting a person to the realization or experience that the koan points towards? Why did the Buddha come up and then leave again when Manjushri gave his little speech? Let's get started. Let's begin with suchness. We've discussed this before, but as always, it merits more and more discussion, as it is the critical point in so many of the koans we have read and are yet to read. In Sanskrit, suchness is read as tatata. This tata in the beginning part is the same as in the title of the Buddha, Tathagata. As you can see, this word is made up of two portions. The first portion is the part shared in Tathagata, which is tata. This refers to such or thus. As you know in English, such or thus can refer to many, many things, or even just anything, like when we say blah 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 and such. Here, such just means a thing itself. It means how things are in the truest sense of meaning. It does not always refer to how something appears to be in the phenomenal world, though that is sometimes the case in different branches of Buddhism. It refers to how something actually truly is. The second portion of the word is ta, which is nearly identical to the suffix ness in English. It adds the meaning of having the characteristic of x, or having the characteristic of being x. When you put them together, you get the state of being as something is the characteristic of something exactly as it is. There's no simpler way to put it in the context of Buddhism. As we have seen plenty of times on this show, Buddhism's primary doctrinal concern is not how can I get to heaven when I die, or how do I achieve immortality, or anything like that. It is how do I come to know and experience the world and reality exactly as it is. All branches, doctrines, texts, debates, practices, etc. all trace their development back to that central question. As such, when I said reality exactly as it is, at the end there, you should have heard suchness. Thus, another way of putting it is to say that the entire central and complete goal of Buddhism is to come to know and experience suchness. While every branch of Buddhism will have its own line of reasoning and its own prescribed set of practices and doctrines for how to do this, all of them share in the central importance of suchness to what they do. They will debate about what suchness is, they will debate about how to get to it, or they will debate about whether it is self-evident or not, as we will soon discuss ourselves, but all of them are oriented in relation to suchness somehow. Suchness as a concept sounds simple, but let me stress that it is absolutely not. To understand suchness means to be omniscient. If you understand the most subtle inner workings of reality, of all of the world around us, the implication is that you will understand exactly how it unfolds itself before you, in any and all cases. In other words, you know everything that has happened, is happening, or will happen. You know all the intimate details of every single sentient being's karmic situation, their past and future lives, and exactly what they need to get from where they are 
to where you yourself now are, which is enlightenment, omniscience, insight into suchness, etc. This is no small thing. Now, most schools of Buddhism tend to agree that suchness is the state of reality exactly as it is prior to a human being or a sentient being's conceptions and categorical ways of thinking and discursive and calculatory ways of thinking divide the world up into categories or into concepts which simply do not reflect the reality of the world exactly as it is. This is how Buddhists argue that language develops. This is how Buddhists argue that conceptions and desire develop. It's because we come up with these ideas about the world which are either partially or even completely ignorant of exactly how the world is in front of us. As a result, the prescribed practice for fixing this sort of delusion or this sort of ignorance is to meditate and study and practice so that you can penetrate these delusions and penetrate this ignorance and actually experience the world exactly as it is, free of delusion, free of categorical thinking, free of ignorance. Now that we've established that suchness is understood to be prior to or beyond, however you like to look at it, this categorical thinking and the way that our senses divide things up into these incomplete conceptions and incomplete reflections of reality for the purposes of desire, which leads to suffering, then now we can introduce the question of whether or not suchness is self-evident. A great deal of debate has taken place among different branches of Buddhism about whether or not suchness is self-evident. It's definitely understood to be something fundamental, something that's like a bedrock of phenomenal reality. However, it's still an open question among different branches whether or not it's immediately accessible to a person in the midst of their regular daily life experience in samsara, or whether it's something that you have to uncover through practice, meditation, and study. Is wisdom an insight of some kind prerequisite to seeing it and to understanding suchness, or is it possible that one can access it with no prior work or study as long as they do whatever is necessary to open up their daily life experience to it? A great deal of the task in Buddhism, in Buddhist practice, is to purify the senses, is to increase your karmic situation to such a good point that you are open and have the capacity to understand what reality actually is, exactly as it is. However, there are some schools which argue that this is not something that takes three mahakalpas. This is something that can be done much faster. Some say it can even be done in an instant. So regardless of whether one thinks that it's something that you need to spend three mahakalpas practicing in order to understand, or whether you think it's something that can be accessed immediately, there's still the open question about whether or not it's something that you can lose. Once you experience it once, are you locked into experiencing it forever? Or can you experience it once and then go back to your regular daily life experience? Once you experience it, is it something that you can forget? Is it something that you can lose? There are tons of questions surrounding this issue of suchness that are so hotly debated in various schools of Buddhism, and the unfortunate answer is that there really is no conclusive set narrative in any branch of Buddhism about what suchness is all about. One thing that many branches can agree on is that one's karmic situation determines how badly paved over their reality is whenever it's presented to them. In other words, if you have really bad karma, the distance between your daily life experience and an experience of suchness is greater than if you have good karma. However, suchness or insight into suchness or even knowledge of suchness at all is regarded as both a cause and an effect for enlightenment, meaning that if you have good karma, it is because you must know something about suchness, or you have an inherent Buddha-like nature, or you have some form of original enlightenment, 
and you work towards experiencing suchness by doing good work, practice, and study because you knew that that was the way to be. So this is kind of a chicken and an egg problem here. If you are improving your karma, if you have good karma, how can that be a result of already having some sort of experience with suchness if the goal of improving your karma is directed at having an experience with suchness? Which one comes first? To what degree does one influence the process of the other? There's no easy answer to that question. There's also another stream of debate which further complicates the issue. In this other stream of debate, the argument is that you have worked toward an experience of suchness or insight into it because you had faith that that was the way to be. According to some of the earliest and most influential Mahayana traditions, the cause and the effect for practice is faith, and the effect and cause for faith is practice. This issue of faith hasn't really come up yet in any of these koans, but it has come up in our regular episodes sometimes. We should remember that this faith is not blind faith, belief that something will work a certain way in the absence of evidence or a reason to think that it will work that kind of way. This is more like faith that because you have witnessed 2 plus 2 equals 4, you will always, always, always see 2 plus 2 equal 4. It is translated as faith, but it's much more like trust or confidence confidence that the world works the way that you understand it to work. In that sense, we shouldn't bring any of our Judeo-Christian biases into this word faith, because it just doesn't really work here. Anyways, in other words, faith can enter the fray as a means of being pointed in the right direction in the absence of original enlightenment or Buddha nature. If you don't have those things, then you can have faith that you can and will and do understand the importance of suchness, the centrality of suchness to phenomenal reality, and the level of suchness as being ultimate enlightenment. However, faith can also work to assist somebody if they do believe those things, if those things do exist. If they believe that they have Buddha-like nature or original enlightenment, then Faith can help us whenever we doubt that we have those things, whenever we don't understand what those things mean, and whenever we don't believe in those things at all. Faith is the way that we can advance on the path in spite of those shortcomings, if we have them. So if we've talked about whether or not somebody understands suchness in the beginning or not, whether or not it is related to faith, or all of these other things, now we can finally start to ask the question, what about the self-evidence, or lack thereof, of suchness? Ultimately, it is an open question as to why the phenomenal world presents itself as defiled and impure if suchness is actually the central bedrock of all of reality. In other words, if we take for granted that once we strip away ignorance and delusion and categorical ways of thinking and perceptions and conceptions, then we will actually get to suchness, the way reality is exactly as it is. However, why did we have to do all of that in the first place? Why, if suchness was all that there was in the center of all of this, did reality present itself as ignorant, deluded, defiled, impure in the first place? Can an impure effect come from a pure cause? The rest of Buddhist doctrine says no. Good begets good and bad begets bad in every single case. So what is the answer? Here again, it appears to be a matter of faith, as we mentioned. You have to have faith that the bedrock of reality is pure and is suchness even if the world around you does not present itself that way. There's also this issue of the unenlightened versus the enlightened perspective. If you hold the unenlightened perspective, then of course you think that reality presents itself as defiled and impure. However, if you have an enlightened perspective, then you understand that reality is suchness, 
even phenomenal reality, because there is no dualism between ultimate reality and phenomenal reality. However, how can you have enlightenment if you don't strive to dispel illusion, dispel defilement, dispel impurity, so that you can have an experience of a reality that is suchness? Yet another chicken and egg problem. As you can see, the debate on whether suchness is self-evident and to what degree it's self-evident is very complicated. In the context of the koan, Manjushri says, when you realize the Dharma King's Dharma, the Dharma King's Dharma is just as is. We can translate this in lay terms to say, one of two statements. When you realize the Buddha's teaching, it has the characteristic of suchness. Or, when you realize the Buddha's teaching, it is suchness. One of these is much more of a bold idea than the other. The first one is not saying anything new or bold at all, actually. All things have the characteristic of suchness. That's nothing new. Everything in reality has the characteristic of being exactly as it is once you strip away defilement, impurity, ignorance, and delusion. Everything has the characteristic of how it is, and everything also has the characteristic of how it appears to be. The second statement, when you realize the Buddha's teaching, it is suchness, is a much bolder claim. It is claiming that the whole of Buddha's teaching, everything he has ever preached, said, done, taught, is suchness in various words or forms. When he taught the Four Noble Truths, that was suchness. When he taught the Eightfold Path, that was suchness. When he taught meditation, that was suchness. Everything he ever preached, in more words or in fewer, was suchness. This is the argument of the Chan and Zen traditions, which is likely why we see this koan in this form in the Book of Equanimity. But just knowing that is not enough to get through this koan. Let's continue with ultimate reality. What is ultimate reality in Buddhism? What is the means by which we experience or come to know that reality? What is its relationship to phenomenal reality or our daily life reality? Most religions in the world have a mostly consistent argument about what ultimate reality is. Judeo-Christian religions say that it is God. Hinduism says that it is Brahman, etc. What about Buddhism? Does it have a consistent view on what ultimate reality is? Not at all. Ultimate reality is not nirvana, because nirvana is not part of reality at all. It's the far shore, as they call it. It's a figurative place away from this one. It's actually the ability for somebody to exit this reality. Is it samsara? No, it can't be that either, because that's phenomenal reality, and it expresses itself to us as defiled and impure. There is suffering and desire here. Is it emptiness? Well, no, because by definition, emptiness is the absence of an ultimate substantial bedrock to all existence. Is it suchness? Maybe. Then the question and the answer become this. Why are we here? What is the ultimate cause for all things presenting as they do? The answer is that they have a nature or a character or a characteristic, and that nature or character or characteristic is that which is expressing the thing exactly as it is. In Cartesian terms, we would say, I am because I am. The first am is referring to the fact that you present in phenomenal reality, and the second am is referring to the fact that although you present in phenomenal reality, you have a characteristic or a nature that transcends phenomenal reality in some way. We know that phenomenal reality is flawed and has desire and suffering, but we also know that this reality is impermanent, fleeting, empty, etc. So if this phenomenal reality was ultimate reality, this would present some problems we would have to solve. So maybe suchness is ultimate reality, but in light of several issues I mentioned a moment ago, it's hard to know to what degree we can access that ultimate reality while standing in this one, or even if we can at all. So all of that notwithstanding, 
Let's briefly pretend that suchness is ultimate reality, and let's pretend that you can access that reality while standing in this one. That's the assumption that Chan and Zen traditions have made, so we can take it for granted here. The appreciatory verse has some things to say about ultimate reality. It says, Do you see the true manner of the primal stage? Mother Nature goes on weaving warp and woof. The woven old brocade contains images of spring. Nothing can be done about Manjushri's outflowing. The first line challenges the practitioner to examine themselves. Do they really know ultimate reality, or do they just think that they do? Have they tasted chocolate before, or have they just read everything everybody has ever written about chocolate? The next two lines are poetically talking about the outflow of phenomenal reality. These lines can be translated into lay terms by saying, stuff keeps happening. Very straightforward. The final line, however, is where things get messy. Nothing can be done about Manjushri's outflowing. This is referring to the big hype speech that Manjushri gave, which may or may not have caused the Buddha to descend the platform after ascending it and saying nothing at all. This line seems to take a negative attitude toward Manjushri for his speech. Why would that be? Because the idea is that this ultimate reality that we have been talking about, suchness, is supposed to be ineffable, not able to be expressed in words. Because how could we use dualistic words and language to define something non-dual? We can point at it with our words, but we can never penetrate it with them. Thus, although he was pointing at something significant and meaningful with his words, if we take the tone of that final line of the verse, we would then venture to say that he was not at all capturing it. But is that really the case? Could it be true that Manjushri's speech was actually a very necessary part of the deal here? Here is what I mean. Language has a very particular and important role in these koans. We cannot write off language as unimportant and insufficient just because it is dualistic. We have hundreds of koans and hundreds of prescribed responses to these koans in Zen Buddhism, which obviously means that language is particularly important for the practice of Zen Buddhism. It is true. Words define themselves against all other words and thus create dualistic relationships and categories of being this and not being that. Words are the result of notions and conceptions that are invented by ignorant and deluded minds, and as a result, they themselves are ignorant, dualistic, deluded, etc. However, if all words rely on all other words for their definition, then they are also interdependently arising. What I mean by that is that a word relies on another word for its definition because it cannot mean A unless all other words mean not A. As such, they are dependent on each other. Also, as to the arising part, they arise. They come into existence, they exist for a while, and then they cease existing. They are impermanent. In fact, we can interpret this differently to say that they are non-arising, because words don't really exist. The thing that a word refers to exists in at least an impermanent fashion, but the word itself does not exist, and the word itself is not the thing itself that it's referring to. You can't drink anything out of the word cup. You can only drink out of the thing that the word cup refers to. So, words interdependently non-arise. That we have a word for anything is a mental formation, a conception created by the desire for the cup itself to have substantial and permanent existence in the face of impermanence and emptiness. This is true of everything in reality. Everything in this reality is interdependently non-arising, and that is the suchness of reality. If we can get insight into all of that, then we're enlightened. We're done. We're there. So in that sense, Manjushri's speech afforded a certain amount of meaning and significance to the Buddha's ascending and descending the platform without saying anything. I go up and down the stairs all the time, but it does not enlighten anybody. 
That is because the action's meaning and significance is contextual. It interdependently arises with what precedes it and with what comes after it. Without context, it is just a guy going up and down the stairs. But with the context of what Manjushri said, with the context that the Buddha is enlightened and he has the 32 physical marks and the 80 secondary characteristics, and with the context that the assembly was there to hear the Dharma sermon, then the whole episode actually has a great deal of depth and meaning without having to have said anything. You should remember the flower sermon that we've talked about so many times, where the Buddha held up a flower, non-verbally communicating the Dharma, or the scene in the Vimalakirti Sutra where, after a contest to see who could describe non-duality in the best fashion, Vimalakirti remained silent, and everybody applauded. Those things alone did not have much meaning, but given the context and the build-up they received from what happened prior, they actually communicated, to a certain extent, the ineffable. They penetrated the character of suchness in a performative way rather than in a linguistic way. The Buddha has taught this way on many occasions. Knowing as he does exactly what has to happen or what a person has to see or hear in order to attain enlightenment, he often leaves words behind and does something rather than saying something. He can do something amazing and trippy like remove the firmament and show the entire galaxy or the ten realms to the audience. He can pick them up and transport them places. He can cover the sky in parasols. Or he can do something simple like hold up a flower, or even just sit there and not say anything, as in this koan, and that's what some people need to see or experience in order to have a true experience of suchness. So let's put it all together. Manjushri says, the Dharma King's Dharma is just as is, referring to the suchness character of that Dharma. In Sanskrit, we call this Dharmata. This refers to its most true and ultimate nature exactly as it is, not necessarily how it presents itself to be. That is to say, dharmata refers to the thing itself, about dharma, not the words that we use to describe the dharma, to communicate the dharma, to convey the dharma, to understand the dharma. This is the very nature of the thing itself, not how we misunderstand it to be, not how we communicate about it to be, not how we think about the words we use to talk about it, but its very nature. However, when we realize that nature, then that suchness of all things reveals itself to us, and we realize that suchness itself is ultimate reality. That is the argument of the Chan and Zen sects, and we will go with it for the purposes of this analysis, because you wouldn't really hear this koan in any other setting if you were a practicing monastic. This point gives away almost the whole koan from the very start, and yet, two more things happen that are worth talking about. First off, the Buddha ascends and descends the platform without saying anything, and then, in the appreciatory verse, it is written that nothing can be done about Manjushri's outflowing. The first part about the Buddha being silent is actually very commonly seen. Given adequate context, the Buddha is often silent, communicating the ineffability or the ineffable itself by foregoing language and words. This is because Manjushri gave away the whole thing in his hype-up speech. The Buddha didn't have anything to preach because it was already preached, and so his ascending and descending the platform without saying anything communicated that to the audience. The second part where they say nothing can be done about Manjushri refers to the paradoxical or contradictory nature of language. It is always interdependently non-arising, just like everything else in reality, and that interdependent non-arising is a double-edged sword. While words are inherently dualistic and insufficient for truly understanding the nature of things they reference, they can at least point towards those natures. At the same time, they themselves are an example of the relationship between phenomenal and ultimate reality. They can't walk through the door for us in our stead, but they can open it for us, or at least point at the door for us. So we shouldn't completely write off language, but maybe we should change how we understand and use it. 
We should note that we've seen this contradiction dealing with language in the past. For example, while it is commonly thought that Zen is completely critical of language and relies entirely on mind-to-mind -mind transmission of the Dharma and on true experience rather than over-intellectualizing or engaging in discursive thought, koans and the ritual dialogues that follow are still critically important to Zen practice. And real Zen practitioners acknowledge that intellectual and discursive thinking gets you started in understanding the koan. So I guess that I'm not completely off the mark with these episodes. They aren't complete by any means and should not be thought of as such, but I can certainly help get you started. I think that this koan is the first case in this compilation because it gets so close and intimate with the central teaching, the central argument, the whole idea, the secret behind the curtain. All other koans in this compilation can really be interpreted as being derivative or interpretive of the message of this one. This is really the only koan in a manner of thinking. All other ones are just various kinds of carbon copies of this one. That doesn't detract from the importance of the messages of all subsequent koans in this compilation and all the other hundreds if not thousands of koans out there. There are still important realizations to be had, still important information about the Zen thought process, still important ways of thinking about the Dharma, the world as we know it, the world as it is, etc. The wonder about Buddhism is that it gives you the answer pretty early on in your education, but you don't yet have the tools, the capacity, the knowledge necessary to interpret it and figure it out and understand it. They tell you honestly and clearly from the very beginning that chocolate is the goal, and it is up to you over the span of many rebirths, or just this one depending on who you ask, to go out and taste chocolate and understand the taste of chocolate and teach others about the taste of chocolate and lead them to the taste of chocolate and help them understand the taste of chocolate. There's some who say that this can take three mahakalpas, where you spend your time practicing, meditating, and training to improve your karmic situation, your wisdom and capacity for understanding, and your orientation to the world around you. However, there are also others that say that this can happen right now if you open yourself up to it in the proper fashion. There are even others who say that this realization, this tasting of chocolate, has already happened to you and you've forgotten it due to your karmic situation or because of skillful means, and thus you are tasked with re-realizing it or teaching others about it. There are as many paths to enlightenment in Buddhism as there are sentient beings. Note that I didn't say there are as many paths as there are Buddhists. Every sentient being is regarded in Buddhism as being on the path whether they know it or not. That's not to say that everybody is a Buddhist whether or not they want to be. It is simply to say that the truths of suffering, desire, and the ends of suffering and desire are said to be complete and universal truths that apply to everybody without discrimination. The idea is that people can advance or regress on the path and still be completely ignorant of the existence of the Buddha. But a threshold of non-regression on the path toward nirvana is crossed when they yoke themselves to the Buddha Dharma. Before that, they are still stuck in samsara, in the cycle of birth and rebirth, and after they cross the threshold of non-retrogression, then they will always be reborn as, at the very least, an arhat, a bodhisattva, or a pracheka Buddha, and not as a regular human, an animal, a hungry ghost, or a demon. This is in the event that they are not choosing to arise in the world as one of those beings with their special enlightenment powers as a skillful means to teach beings in those realms. Throughout this episode, I feel like we have really gotten a very high-up view of what Buddhism is all about, so I think we'll leave it here. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this has meant Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. 
please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.